Welcome to Holy Savior Sermons, bringing you the weekend sermons given at Holy Savior Church. Well, this morning we're going to wrap up the series we began two weeks ago, simply titled Forgiveness. So we do that, and I didn't think I typed in the question, so John, I did type in the question. So just this is a question to kind of, you know, get us thinking, pondering. And the question is this, what song or scent, um, though I did not edit this correctly, what song or scent triggers a memory for you? So think about that for a second. Is there a song or scent that just triggers a memory? And sometimes, you know, they're good memories, they're happy memories, sometimes they're, they're sad memories. Sometimes they're memories of things growing up, you know, you smell something, and like just remind you of what it was like when mom baked, you know, your favorite cookie or, or you know, pie or muffins. You know, for me, one of those scents that just brings back memories is the smell of like pine trees, particularly ponderosa pines. Because growing up, you know, the thing that we would do during the summer is we'd often go away for about a week or so, and we'd go camping in northern Arizona, up in Payson, Prescott, Flagstaff area. And I just love the aroma of the ponderosa pines. So when I smell those, it just brings me back to kind of a, a great place as a child. You know, to smell the ponderosa pines, the kind of the rich, sweet smell. And I remember, like, what it was like to go camping and to have fun being in the outdoors. And there's, you know, other, other aromas that bring back memories, you know, and, and some, well, some are not as happy. But, you know, songs sometimes do that as well. You hear a song and it reminds you of maybe when you first met your sweetheart, you know, or when maybe you broke up with someone, or a song that reminds you of your parents or your loved ones, a song that was important for you to sing together maybe as a family, you know, we have these things that just trigger memories for us, that bring alive something that happened in the past, maybe the recent past, or the long, long ago past, that brings back, you know, for us that moment, that experience. Well, as we wrap up this series on forgiveness, you know, we've been exploring what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not, and what it means to be forgiven and what it means to forgive. Now, as we've done that, you know, we've said that forgiveness is required when relationships are taken seriously. If you're going to be in a relationship with someone, a serious relationship, you're going to have to have forgiveness as a part of that relationship. Because no matter who we are, and no matter who we are in relationship with, we will wrong them and they will wrong us. They will hurt us and we will hurt them. And so if we're going to take that relationship seriously, forgiveness needs to be a part of any relationship. And that includes the relationship that we have with our God and God has with us. We're going to hone in on these words here from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And let's read these words together. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. This demonstrates God's love for us. Christ died for us while we were still what? Sinners. Sinners, you know, means those who are estranged from God, those who have rebelled against God through our, our thoughts, through our words, through our actions. And while we were still in this, this state, Christ died for us. Now, you know, Romans was written by this guy named Paul. Paul wrote a lot of letters. You might know part of his story. Paul was a guy who was formerly named Saul of Tarsus, 
who was a religious leader of the day, a Jewish religious leader. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. Kind of think of like a Nebraska Husker fan. You know, like not just the, the normal ones who are pretty diehard. I'm talking like the crazy ones. <laughs> and you have in mind somebody you know who's like really a true, like diehard Husker fan? Some of you are like, yes. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, they're sitting right next to me. Um, you know, so imagine Paul's like this, except for it's not the Huskers. You know, it, it's, it's his Jewish faith that he is just, you know, he, he's enthralled with. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, he holds as sacred, as shaping his life, the Torah. This is the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. And the traditions and the customs of, of being a Jewish person from honoring the Sabbath, following the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments and all the kosher laws of being, you know, making sure he's clean. And if he, if he does something that makes him clean, that he gets to be or unclean, that he gets to be clean again. And then there's this Jesus guy that enters the picture. And, you know, he, he gathers so many people around him, and then he dies on a cross, and then there's a story that he's risen from the dead. And, and Paul sees this Jesus movement as a threat to the security and the safety and the stability of his fellow Jewish people, of their community. And then one day, Paul has this, you know, spectacular experience. He encounters the living Jesus and his life, and his name is forever changed. Because Saul from Tarsus becomes Paul. And he's so passionate about who Jesus is and what Jesus means for himself and for all people. That he is sent out by Jesus as an apostle. An apostle, you know, is really the word means sent one. So he is sent out. And he begins going all over the Roman world at that time, telling people about Jesus, both his fellow Jewish, you know, people, as well as he begins telling these people that in the Bible sometimes, depending on your translation, you see them called Gentiles, basically meant the non-Jewish people. So he begins telling the Jewish, his fellow Jewish people and the non-Jewish people that, look, this Jesus guy, he's real. And what he did by dying on the cross for us is amazing. And then on top of that, he's alive. He's risen. And this changes everything. And so as Paul is traveling around, you know, the Roman world, he, he comes to these communities and, and people gather around and they become Jesus followers too. And so then he begins writing these letters to these different communities, like in Ephesus and Colossae in Rome. He writes these letters to help foster their growth and their faith to, you know, write about some of the problems and challenges they are facing, sometimes to help correct them, but also to encourage them and to answer questions that they have. And one of these letters, perhaps the most significant and the longest letter, is this one that he writes to this group of Christians in Rome. And part of the background to this, you know, group of Christians in this church in Rome, prior to this letter being written, you know, the emperor at that time, Claudius, had um, ushered out all the Jewish people from Rome for a short time while he was emperor. And then, as they went out, you know, there had been a small group of Gentile Christians. So you had the Jewish followers of Jesus and the Gentile followers of Jesus. And so while the Jewish followers of Jesus were no longer in Rome, the Gentile followers of Jesus began to grow. And so when the Jewish followers come back, now there's instead of this small contingent of Gentile, you know, Jesus followers, there's a bigger one. 
and it builds tension. There's questions about, you know, what do the Gentiles have to do or not do, and how do they work and live together with some of the differences they have, but also the shared faith they have in Jesus. And so that's part of why Paul writes this letter. In this chapter 5, I love chapter 5 of Romans. There's so much here. And, and one of the key things that it teaches is that we are justified. We are made right. Our relationship is made right with God by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And Paul keeps coming back to this again and again. So these words here from verse 8. You know, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Oh, we can go back to that. We're not ready for that yet. We will in a minute, though. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And it goes on to say, you know, would, would someone die for the ungodly? You know, well, no, you think nobody would die for the ungodly. I mean, how many of you would die for your enemy? Well, probably none of us. How many of you would die for someone you love? I mean, especially as parents, you say, yeah, I've got kids. I, if something was in their way, I would. And say, you know, we were God's enemies. We were stuck in our sin. Yet Jesus died for us. This demonstrates, this shows us, this reveals to us God's love. So as, as Paul writes this about, you know, this love that God has for us, this deep love that he has for us, and his willingness to come into this world in Jesus Christ to suffer, die, and rise again, that we have life in him, that we are forgiven our sins. So in this series, as we've talked about forgiveness, you know, we started with the parable or the story often called of the prodigal son or the lost son. It's a story of two, fa- two fathers, a father, sorry, with two sons. And both sons really don't understand the relationship they are to have with their father. They don't understand their father. The one son goes off, lives a wild life, says to the family, blah, I'm done with you. And finally, you know, comes to his senses, comes back and experiences forgiveness from his father, even though he told dad, his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. And the older brother who stuck by his dad and worked on, you know, the property and did all those things doesn't understand why his dad is being so kind and so generous and so forgiving for his younger brother who was a dork and treated his dad like garbage and didn't work hard like he worked hard. Both the younger son and the older son don't really know their dad because if they really knew their dad, they would know that he takes the relationships with his son seriously. And because he does... It's all about forgiveness. And we see in that God's forgiveness for us. And then last week, we explored one of the other stories, parables of Jesus, that of the unmerciful servant, this one servant who had been forgiven so much. I don't know if you remember how much it was, like 10,000 talents. And every talent is 15 years worth of wages. So do the math again. It's like 150,000 years worth of wages. And then the guy that, you know, he's forgiven that by the king. And then he goes out and says, Woo, I've been forgiven. He goes to his fellow servant and says, Give me what you owe me, you know, which was about 100 days worth of wages. 100 days, 150,000 years worth of wages. And Jesus uses his story to answer a question that Peter had, which was, You know, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Typical Jewish practice again was you forgive them three times, three strikes, you're out. Forgiven, don't have to do it again. Peter, thinking he's, you know, caught on to what Jesus is teaching, says, should I do it seven times? You know, it's more than double. And Jesus is like, no, no, seven times, 77. And it's like this high number. And then he tells the story. And ultimately what Jesus is driving home as we talk about forgiveness is that we, as we understand what forgiveness is and we understand it's the relationship we have with God, that we understand also that forgiveness is living out the forgiveness that we have received from others. That God's forgiveness of us, like those 10,000 talents, 150,000 years worth of wages... That God's forgiveness 
is without measure, without calculation. And we are called to forgive others with that same forgiveness. But you know, sometimes, even though it can be really difficult to forgive someone, one of the hardest persons to forgive is who? Is yourself. I mean, I don't know if you're like me and, and me being human. I know sometimes it's hard for me to forgive myself, even though I know here that God has forgiven me. And so, you know, the, the key to forgiving ourselves, is, it's up there on the screen. Say it with me. The, the, the key to forgiving ourselves is simply to agree with God that we are forgiven. So, you know, when Paul writes, if you read Paul's letters, you know, the, the epistles, I think this is a theme that runs throughout because Paul understands this. Paul was driven by this idea that, you know, I had to do all these things to show God, to prove to God that I love him, that I'm worthy of his love. And then he encounters Jesus, and his life is forever changed. And he wants to tell everybody else, both his fellow Jewish, you know, followers of Jesus and the Gentile followers of Jesus and everybody else, that, you know what? You are truly forgiven by God even while you were God's enemies, even while you were not doing anything that would show that you earned or could have God's love. And you can't, Paul says. God loves you. And God has forgiven you. Yet often we struggle with you know, forgiving ourselves. And kind of like you know, we talked about, there's always a connection, right? If you think about a song or a scent that brings back maybe a memory, sometimes you know, we hear the words that we are forgiven. We do that in worship a lot. Right? We confess our sins corporately, publicly. And as a pastor, I stand up here and say, your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet sometimes, you know, what we have done, what we have said, what maybe nobody else knows, maybe it's something that we've done only once or something that we continually do and we struggle to overcome this sin and it happens again and again in our lives. And it's like that aroma that brings back those memories, it brings back that, that feeling, that doubt. Am I forgiven? And we deal with, you know, whether we're forgiven or not, I think we deal with two things when it comes to forgiveness. We deal with guilt and we deal with shame. So really quick, let's kind of run through guilt and shame because there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, guilt is objective. Guilt is rooted in what we have done. In other words, if you're speeding, zipping down the road there, and you see those little flashing lights, and your heart sinks, you grumble, rah, 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 and you pull over, and you're kind of like, like be um, nice, hi, officer, you know, and you say, do you know what you're doing? You're like, uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you know you were guilty of speeding, because you saw that your speedometer was 10 or 15 miles over the speed limit. doesn't matter what you do, what your excuses were, you were speeding. You know, guilt is rooted in what we have done. Shame is a bit different. Shame is subjective. Shame is the condemnation of who we are. So guilt is something, you know, because of what we've done, you know, shame is something that we feel inside of us. Shame is when we know we've said something or done something that has hurt someone else. That we've said and done something that we know it's offensive to God, that it's a sin, a transgression. And we feel this shame. Shame and guilt. Guilt is different than shame because guilt leads to repentance and restoration. Being guilty, you know, we are driven to come before God and say, God, I am guilty. Of course, God says, yeah, I know you're guilty. 
But this is where we hear those words from 1 John. You know, if we say we have no sin, you know, that we're never guilty, you know, we're not being honest with God and ourselves. But God is faithful and true to his promise to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteous deeds, to restore us in a relationship with him. Guilt leads to repentance and restoration. Shame, shame looms like an oppressive cloud separating us from God's love. Think about that. You know, when you feel shame, if you kind of begin to differentiate between guilt and shame, shame is sometimes hangs over us. Shame is maybe what, you know, if you've got a dog, what your dog looks like when your dog has done something you know the dog shouldn't do. You know the face that a dog gives you? Kind of like, oh, and tails between its legs. Shame is what we maybe don't always live on the outside, but we often feel on the inside. Even though we've heard it again from the pastor, your sins are forgiven. Even though maybe we've read the scriptures, even though we know Jesus has died for us, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that sometimes we still struggle with shame, even though we are no longer guilty because the sins have been forgiven. Again, I think Paul understands this. For his own life, and for those followers of Jesus in the first century, and it speaks into our lives today. Paul writes about this not only in Romans, he writes about this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let's read this together. But God was merciful. We were dead because of our sins. But God loved us so much, he made us alive with Christ. And God's gift of undeserved grace is what saves you. So again, God is merciful. Merciful meaning he doesn't give us what we deserve. Standing before the judge, we don't get what we deserve. Ultimately, Jesus gets what we deserve. And we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses. You know, but yet God loved us so much that he makes us alive in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Again, you know, forgiveness is about restoring us into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are forgiven. You are forgiven. Paul also writes about this in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Let's read this together. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He was taken away, nailing it to the cross. So he forgave us how much of our sins? All sins. Now, again, this is a difference sometimes. You know, we might know here, I'm not guilty, but what we feel inside sometimes is that shame that kind of looms over us like a dark cloud. God has forgiven you. Which sins? All sins. The charge of our indebtedness, our legal indebtedness because of our sins has been removed. We are not the ones who are condemned. Jesus was condemned for us on the cross. God nailed all of our sins, every sin, little big sins, the little sins, the sins that happened long, long ago, the sins, patterns that we're stuck in that we can't seem to break away from. God has forgiven those sins. You are forgiven. In fact, this is the truth. God's grace is greater than your greatest sin. God's grace is greater than your greatest sin. There's a reason, I think, um, nearly 500 years ago, this guy named Martin Luther, the German monk, not the uh, guy that lived here in the United States, but in Germany, in 500, you might know him as the guy that nailed the United Five Theses to the doors in Wittenberg. He said this when he's thinking about the people that he preached to on a regular basis. I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. 
I think that is so important. I mean, it's the reason I, I love, it's my favorite words to be able to say to people, whether it's here in worship, sometimes it's one-on-one because sometimes when people are dealing with shame and maybe not the guilt part of things, they, want to, they meet with the pastor one-on-one. I've had people do that. And, and they, they want to just open up, this is what I'm dealing with, pastor. And to be able to turn to someone quietly and privately and say to them, by name, your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. That's power, those words, not only to remove our guilt, but to remove our shame. So we need to hear that gospel every day, every week. The key to forgiving ourselves is what? The key to forgiving ourselves is simply to agree with God that we are forgiven. Sometimes it's easier said than done. But that's why, as Martin Luther said, why Paul wrote in so many of his letters, we need to hear that again and again. We need again and again to focus our vision on the cross and to know that Christ died, not for just them out there, but he died for me. He died for you. That your sins are forgiven. You know, here at Holy Savior, we talk about growing in Jesus and sharing his love. And one of the ways that we're going to really grow in Jesus is to grow in living in that forgiveness that he has for us. To sharing that forgiveness with others, but also living in that forgiveness, knowing that we have no guilt. We have been declared not guilty. And we need to not live with shame because we have been forgiven by the God of the universe. So here's a question for you to ponder as we wrap up this series. And I say a pondering question because I think this answer is a little bit different for each and every one of us. How we focus on the cross of Christ and what it means for you this day. So how can you focus on the cross of Christ? Is it, you know, a visual reminder? Is it making sure that you, you know, open the portals of prayer, open the Bible, have a small devotion, you know, listening to some hymns or music that just kind of reminds you and shapes you for that day that you are forgiven, that you can live a guilt-free, shame-free life in Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise that we are truly forgiven. And Lord, just as Paul wrote to so many of these early Christian communities, he spoke into his, from his own life into our lives. As we hear so often in Scripture, Lord, we are reminded again and again, we need that reminder, that assurance that you truly have forgiven every sin. That there is no sin that is too great that your grace cannot remove it. We thank you for this forgiveness and pray, Lord, that you help us to focus on the cross of Christ, how it shapes our lives, how it shapes our relationships with you and with others. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. For more information about Holy Savior, including service times and location, please visit holysavior.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, God bless.